0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in the book of Acts today called Jesus Goes Global. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 41, as Dr. Neufeld brings us a message entitled, The First Christian Sermon, Part 2.
1: I've got a lot of memories of my own experience with preaching, You know, I still remember one Sunday, I was trying to get through Romans chapter 11. You know, that's the chapter of the Jews and Gentiles. It's about ingrafted wild branches and dead natural branches that are brought back to life and then grafted again into the vine. Well, that passage is just a bit technical, and I must admit, the week before I preached that message, I was really laboring at that thing. I mean, how do you make that passage relevant to God's people who are gathered on Sunday along with unbelievers? I mean, what would this information mean to them? Now, how could I apply that to something in their lives? Well, I wasn't sure. Well, that Sunday, I preached it as best as I could, and I must say, I thought my sermon was a stinker. You know, on the way home, I said to my wife, Kathy, I'd be surprised if even one person showed up next Sunday. It wasn't my finest moment, and I guess I felt sorry for my listeners. Well, that week, I got a call from a young Jewish man who on that Sunday had attended, and as far as I know, he had never been to a Christian church before and for some reason known to God, there he was. He always thought as a Jew, he can't become a Christian without denying his Jewishness. But that Sunday he heard different and he gave his life to Christ as Savior and Lord. You know, that badly crafted sermon had won him to Christ. And I've long been fascinated by the power of preaching. You know, on more than one occasion, I've given an altar call and I've seen hundreds come to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. and. I know it wasn't my gift of persuasion, it was the folly of preaching and the power of the Spirit. I've marveled because it was just words, and yet as I witnessed the earnestness in the faces of men and women who have confessed their sins and surrendered their lives to Christ as Savior and Lord, and I've just marveled. You know, yesterday I started to study the the first Christian sermon in history, and we've already noticed how Peter the preacher has quoted from the book of Joel, showing the predictions in that book, which was then an 800-year-old book, and it was now being fulfilled. Well, after quoting Joel, Peter keeps on in his sermon, and I'm reading now in Acts 2, to 24 Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, I've already made mention of this part of Peter's sermon in my last message, but we're well served to remember this transition. Peter's been making the point from Joel— that this day, the day in which Jews celebrated the abundance of God's harvest, was also called the day of Pentecost. This Pentecost is the fulfillment of the 800 year prophecy of Joel. And Peter has said, we have now come to the last days or the, the last era in history. This is the great transition to the end of the ages. Less than two months prior to that sermon, Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem and then of course raised from the dead. And many of the people who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks had been there just 50 days earlier to celebrate Passover, and so they were witnesses of the crucifixion of Jesus. And furthermore, everyone knew about Jesus' miraculous ministry. But now Peter adds an element that would have surprised many. You see, from their vantage point, Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah, but he had failed. The Jewish religious establishment had opposed him, And even if they had acted illegally or unrighteously, nevertheless, the prospective Messiah had been killed, and so, you know, that was that. But Peter says, no, it was not men who defeated him. God handed him up to crucifixion according to his eternal plans, according to his foreknowledge. It was God's will that he should be handed over to lawless men. And then this rumor they had all heard, Peter now affirms it. God had him killed so that God also raised him from the dead, and in so doing, God affirmed that this man was the Lord of life and death, and death had no power to hold him. So it seems to me if this sermon were being preached today, well, we might expect that the very next item for the preacher to address you know, are the historical proofs that he was indeed risen. I mean, perhaps now was the time to bring up some who had seen the resurrection and have them testify to their encounter with him, or maybe to bring up the evidence of the empty tomb or something like that. But Peter was a man of Scripture. If there is one piece of evidence that was ultimate proof, well, then, that proof comes from the Scripture. And so having already quoted from Joel, Peter now takes his hearers to Psalm 16, which is a psalm of David. And Peter's quoting verses 8 to 11, or as we find it here in Acts 2, 25 to 28. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, at the very outset, we notice that Peter wants his hearers to understand that. When David wrote Psalm 16, he was actually talking about Jesus. Now, we who live in a day of skepticism, well, I could almost hear our response. Ah, This is a psalm, say the critics, that speaks about David's affliction or his suffering. It's about David, it's not about Jesus. But look at the context of Psalm 16. You know, the psalm expresses David's confidence that God is going to care for him even when he faces trials of various kinds and So from the outset, it does seem like it is a psalm of the king of Israel who expresses his confidence that God is going to protect him and give him wisdom and watch over his life and provide him with joy. But the Jews of Peter's day really did think that this psalm did have messianic overtones and they were, to the most part, quite familiar with this psalm. I think the best way to explain this is If you and I think of a movie that everyone in our day and in our culture seems to have seen, you know, make mention of one famous scene in the movie, or maybe one famous line delivered by an actor, and everyone's head is going, yep, we know it, we get it, it's understood in our culture. So in order to understand Peter's sermon and his audience, one needs to immerse oneself into that culture because when the mere quoting of a passage of Scripture, well, it would be understood by most of the crowd. They'd know the passage, they'd understand the context, they would know some of the discussion about the meaning of that passage. And so Peter, the preacher, is referring to a Scripture that most of his hearers would have understood and they would have studied in some depth. What's really fascinating in the way that Peter handles this psalm is that Peter acknowledges the, the real experience of King David. In spite of his sufferings, David has not lost hope. God is always before me, says David. God is at my right hand, which, by the way, is the hand of the strength of a warrior in battle. That is, even when I'm in the heat of battle, David says, I acknowledge the real presence of God with me. That's why no matter the trouble I'm in, no matter the danger I face, Well, I find myself genuinely glad, and I'm filled with future hope. But what hope does David have? And this now is what Peter is getting to. See, Peter, quoting Psalm 16, quotes the verse where David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. The Hebrew word for Hades, well, that's the word Sheol. It can either refer to the dwelling place of the dead— but it can also speak quite literally of the grave. See, all the Old Testament writers knew that no one escapes the power of death. You know, everyone descends to the grave at his appointed time. There's no getting around that. But here in verse 27, Peter reads that, that David says that he's convinced that God would not abandon him to the grave. And when he uses the word corruption, he's saying that God would not abandon his body to degradation to decay. You know, as Peter is preaching, he says to the crowd, do you remember when David said that? And every head is nodding, yup, oh yeah, we remember that passage very well. And then it's right here where we have to wonder, what was David talking about? And that's the puzzle, but it's that very puzzle that Peter wants to address straight on. How is it possible for David, the man who wrote sacred scripture? Scripture that must be true in every respect. Well then, if, if it is true, how is it possible for David to have such confidence that God will not abandon his body to the grave or to allow his body to succumb to decay? I mean, what do we make of Psalm 16, Peter asks his audience. And by now, everyone is hanging on every last word he saying.
0: You remind us every day, you challenge us, to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised, and that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful, and it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical, and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of our ministry team, thank you for what you've already done. And in advance, thank you for continuing to stand with us. To discover all the Bible resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these Bible teaching programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Let's keep reading Peter's sermon. Now we're to Acts 2, 29 to 32. as has Peter saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Let's start by noticing what might seem like a very small detail. Did you notice that Peter calls David a patriarch? Now, under normal conditions, when we think of the patriarchs, we think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those three form the foundation of the people of Israel. Normally, one would never call David a patriarch, but Peter does exactly that. He calls him a patriarch because he knows that David's throne is the foundation of the messianic hope. If the day of the Lord is to come, it's only going to come when one of David's direct descendants rules this earth. And David knew that. And so do we, says Peter. And therefore, David is the founder or the patriarch of the messianic throne. He is that kind of a patriarch. But then also notice that Peter calls David a prophet. Now, as I've mentioned in the past, the word prophet, well, that can be used in several different ways. You know, a prophet doesn't necessarily mean someone who speaks about the future, but every prophet is someone, a man who speaks God's word to people. He's not speaking on his own behalf. He's speaking on behalf of God. He's repeating what God told him to say, and that's what David did in Psalm 16. Now, put those two concepts together, that of David as a patriarch, And then David is a prophet. David then can never speak just for himself. He's a patriarch. So he speaks of the Messiah and he's also a prophet. You know, when David said he had hope that his body would not see decay, he's either a false prophet or he's standing in the office of the patriarch to the hope of the Messiah. So how do we decide whether David's only speaking for himself or whether or not he's speaking for the Messiah? Well, says Peter, we can resolve that right now. Just go down the road, just a few steps from here, and you're going to find David's tomb, yeah? His body is laid right there, and after he's been lying there now for 1,000 years, we know that his body is completely decayed. He did see decay. And since that's an undeniable fact, it is therefore also undeniable that when David wrote the 16th Psalm, he was speaking in his unique office as a prophet for the Messiah— one of David's descendants, according to this psalm, would die and not be abandoned in his own grave, neither would his body see corruption. And then Peter, you can almost see he's now leaning across his pulpit, and he says, we're the witnesses. He's standing in a place where everyone can see him, and standing just behind him are 11 other men. All of us saw Jesus raised from the dead, he says. Indeed, it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. Unlike David, The tomb of Jesus is not in this city. We saw him, we touched him, we ate with him. He appointed us as witnesses of this good news to you today. See, at that moment, you could almost hear the silence of the crowd. But Peter is still not done. Let's go to verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. ah Peter's bringing the sermon back to the events that everyone in the crowd had just witnessed. 120 believers had poured out into the streets of Jerusalem. They'd been proclaiming the mighty deeds of the Lord in languages they had never learned, or in some cases, they wouldn't even have heard before. Remember, this is astonishing, and everyone's been asking, I mean, how do we explain that? And so there's a relationship between the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. There's a relationship between Joel chapter 3 and Psalm 16. We have right now reached a change in era, says Peter. In the past, the prophets told us to expect the coming of the Messiah, as well as the Holy Spirit being poured out on all people. And now right here, in the last two months, we've gone from an older era to this, which is a brand new era of the Messiah. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter is drawing this matter to a conclusion. We come to verses 34 to 36. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This now is the last of the Old Testament quotes, and this from the very well-known Psalm, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Remember, Peter began by quoting Joel chapter 3, then Psalm 16, and now Psalm 110. In Peter's day, almost everyone understood Psalm 110 as a messianic psalm. The Lord said to my Lord. That's the very difficult part to understand. Who is the Lord that he's speaking to my Lord? But Peter has no difficulty in explaining that it is the Father speaking to his Son who says, sit at my right hand, come, sit enthroned in heaven, in the place of authority and power until I eventually overcome all your enemies. And so Peter has explained that the scripture foresaw the death of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah and the Messiah ascending into heaven until all the Messiah's enemies were defeated. And that Bible explanation leads Peter to his point of conclusion. You crucified Jesus. But God has honored him highly and made him both Lord and Christ. It's another way of saying that it is God that has declared Jesus to be Lord and Christ to you. That is, it's not the church that made up that title for Jesus. Those titles come from God himself. Notice where Peter has left his audience. How did God think about Jesus? Well, the answer, God highly honored him and declared the highest of all titles as befitting of him. On the other hand, how did the men of Jerusalem think about Jesus? Well, you nailed him to a cross. So we keep reading Acts 2:37-40. 2, now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Brothers, what shall we do?" And Peter said to them, "Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children." and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. There really is something to the expression, they were cut to the heart. You know, it's an image of a knife entering deeply into a body so that it cuts right into the heart. And what it means is that the heart is cut through with guilt or with deep conviction. See, the people can't escape blame anymore. They can no longer hide it. Their their guilt stares at them. It declares them guilty. And by the way, all conversion begins with just that. I'm guilty before God. I deserve condemnation. I may have denied it up to this point, but I have been cut. I can no longer escape my culpability in this enormous offense before God. And that's why someone must have shouted it out and everyone agreed, what shall we do? I mean, perhaps they had thought about that event some three years earlier when John the Baptist had been preaching at the Jordan and he was exposing everyone's sin and and, and people were saying, what shall we do? I'm so glad that the first ever Christian sermon answered that most important and fundamental question. See, I want you to notice that Peter gives two commands and they're followed by one promise. The first command, repent. Repent means at least three things. I mean, first, it means we acknowledge that we've done evil. No excuses, no pleading of special circumstances, no attempt to minimize. It means to own the evil for what it is entirely and to say, I'm guilty. Second, it means that we commit to turning from the evil, to utterly renounce it as evil, and to be so appalled and horrified by our evil that we're ready to abandon it completely. And of course, lastly, it means to seek forgiveness. You know, I say that because in our day, we have all manner of people who are willing to do the last part, but not the first two parts. That's unacceptable. It indicates no genuine repentance. We must own our own evil before we ask for forgiveness. Second, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, surrender to Jesus. Die with him in the waters of baptism and be raised to newness of life. It means to surrender your life utterly to him and to his authority. You've got to turn from your sins and you must turn to him. And then after those two commands comes the promise. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, what happened to the 120 is going to happen to you, You will be baptized not only in water, but in the Spirit. It's going to happen. Acts 2.41. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so with that, the church has now begun. And that's the definition of the church. It's the company of those who have repented, who have been baptized into Jesus, and in consequence of that, have received the Holy Spirit. This is God's program for the world. And if you've never had that, come to Jesus today. He offers you what was offered to those people then.
0: Thanks, John. You know, John, we've talked about this before, but so many of the apostles reference the Old Testament in respect to Jesus. So tell me, why is that so important when we read the Bible? Yeah.
1: I, You know, I've often said, I, I don't remember uh, the exact number, but the, the the New Testament is just plugged full of Old Testament references. So you know, we could really look at the New Testament in this sense that, you know, uh, now that Jesus has come and the fullness of the ages has come upon us, everything in the Old Testament now makes sense. Um, so you know, we reread the Old Testament in the light of Jesus, and it now becomes abundantly clear. So, you know, the preaching of um, of Scripture by all of the New Testament writers was all a preaching of Old Testament texts in the light of Jesus. It gives us this unity
0: of the whole Bible. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every month, Back to the Bible Canada sends out a ministry update email. This email includes links to the newest Bible teaching resources, special messages from Dr. Newfeld and others, and an exclusive five-minute audio program called Five and Five. This program is my opportunity to ask Dr. Newfeld, Phil, and other members of the team five insightful questions in only five minutes. All this exclusive to our monthly update email. Sent out once a month, and you can have it sent to you by simply signing up at backtothebible.ca, or if you'd rather just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And when you're signing up, make sure to take a look at all of the free ministry resources available, our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, and the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, just to name a few. For more information or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit back to the